Last week, we looked at the Apostle Peter and the beautiful, powerful account of him being restored in his relationship with Christ and his ministry to him and for him in John chapter 21. And we saw in that that God actually uses our failures, not that it's a good thing, but he uses those failures, those times that we fall, which we all do, uh, to remind us of some very important things and to teach us through that, that he doesn't waste our failure, that he works in and through it. But another very, very important aspect of restoration that we have to make sure we understand and, and not glance over is the aspect of repentance. Repentance is absolutely vital for restoration to truly take place. Repentance, genuine repentance, is required before restoration can occur. Write that down. Write that down. That's very important to understand. Repentance is required. It's not, it's not just something we should pursue or, or think about. It's not suggested. It's not optional. Repentance is required before restoration can occur. And, and a lot of times we, we want to kind of just skip over the repentance part and go right to restoration. If we're not careful, we'll, we'll do that. We'll just breeze right past the repentance part and just try to get to the restoration part. Because repentance isn't comfortable. It's not comfortable. It, it never will be. And it's never going to be really easy to do. But yet, though that's true, it is absolutely essential. We cannot be restored to God, who we have offended and turned away from by our sin, by our selfishness, by all that we have chosen that is is outside of him or his will or, or in disobedience to him. We can't be restored to him and in right relationship with him if we have not confessed what is wrong if we've not gotten rid of what is keeping us from him in the first place. Because what happens when we sin, we, we all, whatever the sin may be, whether we define that as small or great, which God doesn't have that separation, by the way. It's, it's all sin before him. It's all evil and wicked. It's all what put his son on the cross. But whether we define it as big or little, whatever it may be, anytime we choose sin... We are, are saying to God, I'm going to turn away from you, and I, I'm going toward this thing, this person, this idea, this decision, this temptation, whatever it is. I'm going toward this sin, that which is sin. I'm, I'm leaving you over here, and I'm going over to it. And repentance, what it, what it is in every form, fashion, and shape, is a recognition of, of how wrong and dangerous and foolish that is, and you wake up from that foolishness and that sinfulness, and you say, okay, I'm actually going to do the opposite now. I'm going to turn my back on the sin that I chose, that which took me away from God, and now I'm making my way back toward Him. Repentance is turning completely from the sin that is separating you from a holy God and turning and going back toward him, aligning yourself with his will, aligning yourself with his character and his holiness once again. That's what repentance is in its truest form. 
And so repentance is absolutely necessary and essential if we have any hope of being restored to our God. And if it's that important, if it's that important to do, it's that important then that we understand what repentance actually looks like, what is involved in it, what is required of it. What, what does it mean to really repent? What is necessary in our repentance? What has to be there? And, and for that, we see that in very, very, very clear explanation from Psalm 51. Psalm chapter 51. And in Psalm 51, to give you a little context, it's King David, and he's writing this psalm after he has been confronted by the prophet Nathan. And the reason that Nathan confronted him is because King David was at his absolute lowest point morally and spiritually. He had decided that he had to have Bathsheba, another man's wife, not just any man, but one of his closest friends, Uriah. Uriah was one of David's mighty men, his inner circle, his chief soldiers. It was a group kind of like think about special forces or you know like the seals, seal team 6 kind of thing. They were the elite. And David had formed a very close relationship with all of them. And Uriah was one of those men. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we, we see David's failure. We see him falling, and, and wow, did he fall. Not only did he commit adultery with another man's wife, but then to cover up that, he actually had this man, her husband, who he knew very well, a trusted Soldier, a trusted friend, a trusted advisor, he had him killed. Put him in the front of the army where he knew he would be killed quickly by, by all the onslaught of the opposing force. So you have King David, Shepherd David, who was close to the Lord in his youth, the psalmist David, who wrote all kinds of psalms of worship and comforted King Saul with his, his music and his worship, and now king of all of Israel, who God instilled installed there, deciding, choosing wickedness and evil and selfishness and lust over righteousness, over holiness, over surrender to God. Talk about a low point. This is the lowest that we would, will ever see in Scripture King David be. Thankfully, though, he did not stay there. He chose not to stay there at that point of low Morality and low spiritual health and absolute failure. He didn't just stay there. He chose to get back up again. He chose to return to God. And thankfully, we can all choose that today. It doesn't matter, friend, my brothers, my sisters, it doesn't matter what you have chosen to do that is contrary to God and His will. That's not a good thing. It's never a good thing. But here's the really good thing about that you don't have to stay there. You don't have to stay in your failure. A, you can learn from it, as we talked about last week, and B, you can always, always get out of it. You can always return to the God that you chose to turn away from by his grace, by his mercy, by his faithfulness, but also by your choosing to repent, by your choosing to repent. And so this Psalm 51 just captures in, in just raw form an openness and a genuineness of where David's heart was, what he recognized, and what he did about his failure. And it's something that we all need to apply to our life. 
So with that in mind, here's what true repentance requires. What true repentance requires. Repentance is required before restoration can occur, so we need to understand then what true repentance does require. And we see that on display in verses 1 through 11 of Psalm 51. So I, I hope you'll, you'll be there, or maybe you're already there, Psalm 51, 1 through 11. And, and get ready, get your pen out, be ready to take all kinds of notes, not because I'm just so profound, but because God's word is. And there is so much here in this passage. There is so much just treasure and truth and beauty that you're going to want to follow along and, and just jot things down for you to keep in front of you, to come back to, to remember. This is just an amazing passage of Scripture. So here we go. Psalm 51, verse 1. Be gracious to me, God. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful Love according to your abundant compassion. See, it's not based on our merit or anything that we deserve that God should turn to us. Any of his, his grace, any of his favor toward us, anything good we receive from him, anything at all that is, is full of, of goodness, of mercy, any of that is not based on our merit at all. Nothing we can be, nothing we can do could ever bring down the favor of God on our life. It is all, always from his grace. All from him, none from us. That's what we see here David recognizing. He's saying, I'm in need, God, of that which I cannot produce in myself. I can't bring it about. I can't snap my fingers and make it happen. I need your favor, and I, for that to happen, I need you to be gracious to me. I'm in need of your mercy, God. I'm broken, I'm empty, and I need you to fill me up, so please be gracious to me. According not to anything I deserve, it's not because I'm the king, it's not because of all that I know, it's all going to be according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. And we've got to recognize that. As we start the process of repentance, it doesn't matter what we've done that, that repentance is, is called for now, as we start that process, the first thing we've got to understand and realize and admit is that we are in need of mercy and grace. That we are standing outside of God's will for our lives. We have offended a holy God. He is our Father. Through Jesus Christ, He is our Savior. But He is a holy, righteous God. And our sin is a big deal because it violates his holiness, violates his will for our lives, it violates his commands. It's a big deal. So we have to be willing to just lower ourselves and fall at his feet, as it were, and say, God, I'm in need of your mercy. Be gracious to me. We see that very clearly here from David as he starts off. He starts off in the right direction, appealing for mercy. And he doesn't just appeal for mercy. Notice what he says at the end of verse 1. Blot out my rebellion. Blot out my rebellion. This, this is literally, the word that David used here, it literally means obliterate. Obliterate or wipe away completely my rebellion against you. Isn't that just a beautiful thought? That God in his grace and his mercy, even though 
he would be absolutely right in just holding us to his standard, absolutely right in, in harshly judging us. That would be totally right and fair on his part. But because he is gracious, because he has abundant love and, and, and abundant compassion, faithful love, because of those things, we can be confident that our God will do that. That he will absolutely obliterate our rebellion against him if we come to him in sincerity and genuineness. It's a good thought for me. I love the idea of, of here's my, my sin and my guilt and everything stacked up before God. And, and because of his mercy and grace and because of the blood of Christ for, for us here today, because of that, he just looks at all that and he just destroys it. He just wipes it all away. Isn't that an awesome thought? And that's the, the hope that we have in God that he will just obliterate all of our rebellion. And that's always what sin is. It's always what sin is. Don't ever forget that Every sin, whatever it may be, is a rebellion against God. It's outright rebellion. It's not just something light that we can easily dismiss. Well, let's keep going. Verse 2. He says, wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. There's two, two words there, isn't there? Wash and cleanse. What's the difference? Wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. Well, the, the word here for wash, it's, it's really scrub repeatedly. Scrub repeatedly. It's not just like you'll rinse your hands under the water really quick and then it's done. This, this conveys the idea of, of scrubbing repeatedly and scrubbing furiously. Last week, there was the collar run at Greater Beckley. And I, I, I'm, that may be the wrong, was it collar-a-thon? collar Colorathon. Color run sounds so much easier, so much better. And they were running, right? So it's a collar run. Um, so they, they were throwing all these like paint bombs or chalk, I don't know what it was, but, but it was stuff that, that, that made dye you know, on, on the clothing and on the hair and on the skin of, of those participating. So you had uh, all these kids and adults uh, covered from head to toe, literally, in, in all these different colors, uh, and, and it was just incredible. And it wasn't something that just you brushed off, like flicked off, and then you were good. Um, my girls, as soon as they got home, they went right to the shower. It was like, I mean, they didn't even say anything to me. It was like, and, and they were there in the shower. And, I mean, they normally take very quick showers, and I know that that window is closing. I, I realize that. But... But for now, they take very, very quick showers. This time, though, it was a long deal. And it was like, what is going on? And after they got I said, girls, why did you take so long in the shower? And they said, we had to keep scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing. And, and sure enough, there was like, from where they were scrubbing so furiously, there was like paint on the ceiling and on the tile, on, on the floor. I mean, it was everywhere. And even then, there was some paint left over. So like they were still, you know, doing this and, and trying to get it off. That's the idea here. It's scrubbing repeatedly and, and, and vigorously to clean the stain. We do that with our favorite pair of jeans or shirt, right? When you get something on that favorite outfit, I mean, you, you might have to wash it and then rewash it and rewash it till it's finally clean up to your standards, right? That's the idea here uh, with wash. It's it scrub repeatedly, scrub viciously uh, to, to wash away David's guilt. He's saying, my guilt is so great. My guilt is stacked up before you so high that a little washing isn't going to do. I need you, God, to scrub repeatedly till there's nothing left. Please, God, do that in my life. 
And then he says, and cleanse me from my sin. The word there that he used for cleanse in the Hebrew, it, it really conveys the idea of sanitizing, making pure. Think of Purell, hand sanitizer, right? It, it, it's like it, it just gets rid of all the residue. It, it purifies at a deep level, a level that you can't even see. It goes beyond the physical and the surface down deep, and it just sanitizes thoroughly. He's saying, please just scrub away my guilt till there's no trace, and then go even deeper than that, and just cleanse me, sanitize me, bleach me, make me completely pure before you. You think David is, is seeing the gravity and the weight of his sin a little bit here? I think so. I think so, and that's what we all need to do as well. Every single time the Spirit of God reveals that we have sinned, that we have erred, that we have departed in any way from his will or his, his plan for our lives, then this is the, the type of posture we need to take. We need to see it as severe as David does. Verse 3, he goes on. He says this, For, for I am conscious of my rebellion. I'm conscious of it. I'm not ignoring it in any way. I'm not, I'm not sweeping it under the rug. I'm admitting everything that is wrong before you right now. I'm fully aware of my rebellion. Again, that's what sin always is. Sin is always outright rebellion against our God. And he's saying, I'm aware of that. I'm not just I'm not just ignoring it. I'm confessing it. And that's what confession will always do. It will always hit our failure head on. It will embrace our failure with the goal of that being embracing the mercy and grace of our God that awaits us. Confession, though, always requires full admitting it, full disclosure, full awareness of how weighty our sin really is. I'm conscious of my rebellion, he says, and my sin is always before me. I think we can all relate to that. If you're a believer in Christ here this morning, you know what that's like. You know what it's like just to, to not be able to, to get away from your sin. Like when you have sinned and you know it, it's like no matter what happens in your day, no matter how your schedule progresses, no matter what good things come your way, that is just always there. It's just nagging you. You can't just get away from it. It's always on your heel. And that's, that's what it's going to be like for the believer. It's just going to be impossible to ignore. And that's a miserable feeling, isn't it? I mean, you know you've sinned before God, and until you confess it, you, you try maybe to do other things, and, and you're just you're resisting that. And what a miserable feeling that, that is and that can be. But it's something that actually God can use to bring us to him, that feeling of misery, knowing something's not right. God can and will use that by his spirit to say, come back to me, get this right, let's talk about this, you need to confess this, and I'm not going to leave you alone until you do, right? My sin is always before me, David says. Then verse 4, here's another part of confession. Verse 3 is admitting the, the problem, being aware of it, not ignoring it, Hitting it head on, verse 4 is another aspect of true confession, which repentance has to have, confession. He says this, against you, against you, God, against you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. That's the proper perspective. That's the proper perspective. Because confession of sin always needs to start with God, because our main offense is always against him. 
That doesn't mean our sin doesn't affect other people, and that does not mean that we don't sin against others, as, as this sin of David shows. I mean, this sin with Bathsheba was a sin against Bathsheba as well. And it was a sin against Uriah. And it was a sin against even the people in his kingdom. I mean, like, he, he had servants go get her and bring her to him in his palace. And he had people cover it up. I mean, this was like David becoming the real politician here. You know? So he involved all kinds of people in his sin, and that's what sin always does. Sin will always bring others into your sin. And our sin very often will be sin against others, but we have to get something straight first. That our sin is always, first and foremost, a sin against God. And that's the perspective we always have to have. So it's right for David to say, against you and you alone I have sinned. That doesn't mean literally that that there were no aspects of sin that went horizontal, but it meant that he understood this is a vertical problem. And that's what needs to be in our heart as well as we confess, as we go through the repenting process. And then he continues, So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. See, there's no pride here. There's, there's no excuse given here. But God, you just don't understand. You know, it was because of this and this and this. And, and it was because of these circumstances and these situations. And God, if you had just, and why didn't you? There was none of that. Excuses were gone. This is David stripped down, bare, broken, no pride left, no ego, nothing but sincerity. Nothing but, but recognizing what was happening here and the truth of his sin. You are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Verse 5, he continues, Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Wow. So, so what we see here is the, everything cleared up about when does sin start in a life. You know, there's no question. It's cleared up for us. When do we become sinners? From the moment we're conceived. <laughs> I mean, you see sinful nature, human sinful nature, right here, bam, boom, right there. Doesn't even, it doesn't even wait for the baby to be born for sin to enter. It happens at conception. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. This is, this is just total depravity of human beings, clear as can be. We don't have to teach our children to sin, right? We don't have to teach them. It's not like we, we sit down and say, no, this is sin. And, and, and you're probably going to, to experience this at some point in your life. We don't have to do that. No, it happens right away. I mean, as beautiful and precious as those new babies are when they're born, and we all say, wow, that baby is just, starts with a P. Perfect. Oh, look at that perfect little bundle of joy. When it, biblically what we can say is, oh, look at that little depraved, sinful little thing. Now, none of us would ever do that, right? Try it. Let me know how that goes for you. But it's true. It's true. Because I was sinful when my mother conceived me. The sin nature enters right away. Immediately. Immediately. And it doesn't take long for that to be on display because that little precious baby immediately becomes very, very selfish very quickly, right? 
That's the first thing that happens. Feed me. Pick me up. Comfort me. It's all about me. And yes, it is for a very for 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 a long time. It's it is all about the baby, right? <laughs> but there, there's this just this this innate selfishness that comes in, and an innate selfishness that's that's on display very very quickly. And yet, even though that's true, even though the sinfulness starts early and is there on full display very quickly, verse six. Look what it says: Surely you desire integrity. In the inner self. I mean, that's not just surface. That's not just external. That means down to the core. And you teach me wisdom deep within. Some translations word it as, yet you desire integrity from the very beginning. You entire desire integrity at, in the womb. And in the womb, in the secret place, you teach me. So there's this, this sinfulness on display at the beginning. There's human nature right there with sin all over it. And yet, at the same time, God's righteous requirement doesn't just be put on hold. You know, It doesn't just leave for a while. God is always righteous. God always has his absolute holy standard to keep. What is, the, what is our hope then? What is the, the way of, of reconciling to? Well, it's, it's grace. It's grace. Because God, from the very beginning, we also know that just, just like sin is present there in the life, we also know that God has plans for each of us from the very beginning as well. He told the prophet Jeremiah, Before you were born, I set you apart as a prophet to the nations. David, in another Psalm 139, talks about God forming him in, his, in the secret place. And all the days ordained for him were written in his book before one of them came about. So just as sin nature is present in the, in the womb, so is God's plan for that child. And that plan all through the life will involve grace and mercy and drawing to himself to the point where that life ends up surrendering to Jesus Christ. For Savior. God pursues from the very beginning. God reaches in the very beginning. And verse 6 says that surely you desire integrity, uprightness, honesty in the inner self, not just surface or external, but the true self, the, the, the thing that makes us us at the deeper, deeper level. And you teach me wisdom deep within. In verse 7, he says this, David says this, purify. That's literally unstain me, descin me, unstain me, descend me, purify me with hyssop, which was used, by the way, to apply the blood on the doorpost of the Israelites' houses in Exodus. When, when the angel of death passed over Egypt and he, he, he killed all the firstborn, and he, God said, if you put the blood of the lamb over your doorpost, then I will pass over you, hence we get Passover. What was used to coat the blood over the doorpost was hyssop. And it was also used later to ceremonially sprinkle water from the priests and their cleansing rites. So what, what David is saying here is, is, please declare me as righteous. Declare me as set apart to you. Cleanse me with hyssop. Set me apart. Let everyone know that I'm still yours. 
Cleanse me the way a priest does, God. That's what he's saying here. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Beautiful picture. Signifying he's covered. Though he has sinned, though he has failed, though he has offended, he is still under God. He is still his. He's still under his love. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. That, that's saying as if I've never sinned. Wash me whiter than snow as if I've never even sinned, as, as if I've never had these stains on me that I bear. It's really what uh, the idea conveys here is, is what is also found in Isaiah 118 where God says, come now, let's settle this. Let's reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, which they are, our sins are always, always as scarlet, red as crimson before a holy God. They're blaring, they're glaring. He can't ignore it. He can't turn away from it. If he did, he wouldn't be just, and if he weren't just, he wouldn't be God. So, so if our, our sin will always blare like a siren before God, and he has to do something about it. But Isaiah 1.18 says, come, let's settle this, let's reason together. Though your sin is as scarlet or as crimson, which they are, I will make you whiter than snow. Not by ignoring it, not by sweeping it under the rug and by dealing with it, by letting justice be satisfied at the expense of his son. That's how he was able to make us whiter than snow. That's how he was able to settle with us. That's how God was able to fulfill the promise of Isaiah 118 through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, where justice met, where justice fell on the Son instead of on us, and therefore we receive grace and mercy. I will be whiter than snow, David said, and surely we can be as well. Verse 8, he says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. And, and again, my friends, sin will always make the true believer miserable and in agony. They will always feel the weight and the agony of sin. Always. Verse 9, he says, turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. There's that word blot again, obliterate, wipe it away, destroy my guilt. But turn your face away, he says. And this is exactly what happened at the cross when the father did turn his face away. But he turned his face away from his only son who he had embraced and experienced love and union with for eternity. And yet he turned his face away from his son so that he could turn his face toward us. He turned his face away from his son who all the, whom all the sin of the world, my sin, your sin, was placed. Also that he could indeed turn his face away from our sin because it was placed on Jesus. This is just like what we do at home when we're, we're watching something together as a family. And, and even though it's a, it's, a, it's a good show, it's a safe show for kids, commercials, you know, aren't always safe. You know what I'm talking about, right? Sometimes the commercials are like ten times worse than what you're, you're watching. And so when that happens and we're not ready for it, maybe a, a scary movie is going to be on, uh, on the commercial advertising. And so what we'll do really quickly, we'll grab Aiden and we'll, turn, we'll cover his eyes and we'll turn his face. Poor kid, he's like, what's happening? You know, he's just sitting there and all of a sudden, boom. And it's because we're, we're turning his face away from that which is going to, 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 to be a problem for him. That's the idea conveyed here. Turn your face away. Please, God, don't look at my sin anymore. Please. Blot out all my guilt. And then he says this, verse 10. God, create, that's shape, 
fashion, form. It's the same word as in Genesis 1 when God is creating the heavens and the earth. The word is bara, and it means out of nothing, something from nothingness. It's miraculous. It's something only God can do. Only God can do this. Create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And that's firm, fixed, unmovable. God, create, form, fashion, shape a new heart, a clean heart, and renew a, a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me, verse 11 says. Do not banish me from your presence. Maybe, maybe David was thinking of Cain when Cain sinned against God, when he murdered Abel. And what happened to Cain was he was banished from the Lord's presence. And it was just too much for Cain to bear. Maybe he's thinking of that. Please don't let what happened to Cain happen to me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me like Saul experienced, which David would have been very much aware of. He was right there when that happened. He saw the Spirit of God leave Saul, no longer bless his life. And David is, is I, I just see him shuddering. Please, God, don't let what happened to my predecessor happen to me. Please spare me from that. Now, please note, that's, that's an old covenant reality, Okay. The, the, the fear or the reality, the possible reality of, of the Holy Spirit being taken, that was something that was very much limited to the Old Covenant, which this is, this is under, okay? This is not something that you need to take with you and say, oh, well, maybe, there, maybe I can't be eternally secure. No, 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 you, you can, absolutely. You're under the grace of Jesus. You're under the blood of Jesus. You're in his hand, and you're in the Father's hand. No one, including yourself, can pluck you out of his hand, okay? Let's just make sure we understand that. But in David's time, he saw it firsthand. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. So what all this means, verses 1 through 11, what true repentance requires, we see it on display in these verses. First is humility. Humility. No pride, no ego, no self-justifying. Oh, but God, you just don't understand. It's because of this and this and this. No, none of it. Humility. We also see honesty, not sweeping anything under the rug, hitting it head on, saying, yeah, I've sinned, I've sinned, I've sinned. I've broken all your commands. I stand guilty before you. You're right when you judge. Honesty. And then we also see desperation. Don't you just see that in these verses? He is desperate for God's grace. He is desperate for God's mercy. He is desperate for his heart-changing work that only God can do. He's desperate. We also, my friends, need to exemplify these things. When we come before our holy God in repentance, in confession, we need to be humble, we need to be honest and open, and we need to be desperate for what God alone can do in us. And here's what true repentance results in. As we're, as we're doing that, as we pursue that, here's what true repentance results in, verses 12 through 13. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and give me a willing spirit. Only God can do that. Only God can restore the joy of his salvation. And, and my friends, let's, let's also note this. Salvation is always God's salvation. It is never our own. Just as we could not save ourselves, we cannot keep ourselves saved. It's a total work of God, start to finish. It's always his. Restore the joy of your salvation to me. Only God can restore that. That kind of joy that, that sin totally destroys, that sin totally breaks apart, which sin always does. It always robs us of our joy. It always dashes it to pieces. But God can always restore it, and he's the only one who can. And give me a willing spirit, he says, as opposed to a rebellious one. 
Give me a willing spirit as opposed to a rebellious one, the, the rebellion that he kept saying, blot out, blot out, blot out. He's saying, don't just blot it out, though, God. Give me a willing spirit to replace it. And that's what we always need. Every time we get rid of a spirit of sin or selfishness, we need to replace it with a spirit of righteousness and of service. Do that for me, he's saying, God, please. And that's one of the results of repentance. Verse 13 ends this way. Then, as you're doing that, God, as you do that for me, as you restore the joy of your salvation to me, as I experience that again, as I walk with you again, as you give me a willing spirit in replacing that that rebellious spirit, as you get rid of the rebellion and you replace a a spirit of willingness in me, as you're doing that, here's what I'm going to do, God. Here's my result. Here's my response. Here's what will happen. Verse 13. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways. And sinners will return to you. That's repentance again. Leaving sin and returning to God. Then I will teach, David says. As I, as I receive your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness, as I receive your restoration, as I receive the joy of, of the salvation you've given me again, then I'm going to do something about that. I'm going to act. I'm not going to just sit there. Then I'm going to go out and I'm going to teach the rebellious your ways and, and I'm going to make sure that I'm used of you to bring sinners to you. My friends, this is always, always, always the result of understanding grace. If we really understand what grace means, if we really understand the gospel, if we really embrace it, this will be our response as well. God, you have saved me. You have forgiven me. You have poured out your grace and mercy and love on me. Now now use me to go out and and tell others about this. Use me to instruct others. Use me to teach others. Use me to bring others to you. And this is not in any way from an arrogant position. This is not, not from a place of arrogance. This is a place of humility and experience. As we are, are overwhelmed by God's grace that he would, that he would that he would show us grace and mercy ever at any point. It should just overwhelm us. And that should then motivate us to go and and bring others into experiencing the same thing we experienced. It's a place of humility and wonder, not arrogance or pride. And it's it's, it's a sincere desire that God would use us to go out and impact other people. So what true repentance results in? It results, first of all, in personal spiritual healing personal spiritual healing. You have to be right yourself with God before you can be used to make others right with God. That makes sense, right? I mean, that's pretty common sense. Jesus talked about the plank eye principle in Matthew. He said, how can you see a tiny speck in your brother's eye and say, oh, let me, let me help you out, get rid of that speck, when you've got a two-by-four sticking out of your eye? No, remove that first. Remove your problem so you can see clearly to help others with theirs. There's an order there. We get it backwards a lot of the time. Personal spiritual healing. Personal spiritual healing that is needed. First, myself, before I can be used to help others. And then secondly, it results in grace-filled ministry to others. Grace-filled ministry to others. That's very key. Grace-filled. We get, we, we're really good at just speaking truth. Right? And sometimes in very firm, hard ways. You need the truth. Let me give you the truth. I'm going to tell you all that's wrong with you, and and I'm not going to leave anything out. You're going to hear the truth from me whether you like it or not. Yeah, people need truth, but they need truth conveyed and communicated in a grace-filled, loving manner, just as we receive truth from God. 
grace-filled ministry to others. A great example of this is the woman at the well. The woman at the well in John chapter 4 when Jesus is is going through Samaria and he stops at at this well and and this woman comes and she's there at the wrong time of day because uh, the the, the water's drawn in the morning and this is midday. This is when everybody's asleep and they're, they're in their rooms and she's there because she doesn't want to be the subject of more gossip and more criticism and more judgment like she has been all her her life, and so she comes hoping no one's there, and there's Jesus. There's Jesus. And they sit down and they talk. And Jesus confronts her sin. He speaks truth, but he also speaks grace, and he speaks love, and he speaks mercy. And she's so overwhelmed at the response that she gets from Jesus, this Jew that shouldn't even be talking to her. She just cannot believe it. And she goes, and she tells all of her people. She leaves her water jars. The reason she was there to begin with, that doesn't even matter anymore because she's met the source of living water. She's met Jesus, and she can't help it. She runs to her fellow citizens, the ones that she was trying to avoid, And she just says, hey, you need to come with me right now. There is someone who told me everything I ever did. And they're like, everything? Really? Yes, everything. Didn't leave anything out. And that that, that telling me what I did means he knew about it. He knew all about me, and he didn't care. He loved me anyway. And he, he made me a recipient of grace and of mercy. Could this be the Messiah? I mean, if he's not the Messiah, who else could be? Come, you gotta you gotta meet this guy. And so that's what happens. So they, they come and they talk to Jesus. And they see firsthand who he really is. And they experience the same kind of grace. And it's because this woman at the well, she received spiritual healing for herself first at the hands of Jesus. And then she went and with grace-filled ministry like she received from Jesus, she ministered to others in the same way and brought them to him. Look at the text here. Then the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the men, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And then this was their response. The next verse. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said first. When she testified, he told me everything I ever did. And then it goes on, and, and they say, Well, we, we, we came to him because of what you said, but now we believe because of what he said to us. We've internalized it. And that's always, always what true repentance will result in. Personal spiritual healing first and grace-filled ministry to others. This is what restoration is all about. It's being restored by the grace of our amazing God, our amazing Savior, Jesus Christ. It's learning through our failures. It's, it's seeing his hand at work even in the failure. But we have to make sure, we have to make certain that repentance is there because you can't have restoration without repentance. We've got to model what we see here in, in, in King David who was also called a man after God's own heart. Even after he did all that he did with Bathsheba and with Uriah, he was still called a man after God's own heart. And it's not because he was just so good and he was just so pure in and of himself. It's because he understood what was in God's heart and he went after it. He understood what God's heart was for him and he surrendered to it. That's what made him a man after God's own heart. That's what's available to all of us today. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the example of David I thank you for the example of Peter that we looked at last week. And, and, and both of these men, these flawed, very, very human men, show us the beauty of restoration. Thank you for your son meeting Peter right where he was at and restoring him for every single one of his 
denials. I'm restoring him fully and completely. Thank you, Father, for the example of David and showing us what real repentance looks like, what real repentance requires, and what it can result in for each and every one of us, just like it resulted in for him. May we be people, Father, who pursue restoration with you moment by moment by moment. We are always, always going to need your grace and your mercy and always are going to need your restoring work. But for that to happen, God, we've also got to be people of repentance. Help us, please, Father, by your Spirit, to pursue and embrace true repentance and all that that means. That we may experience to the fullest your restoration. Thank you, God, for your work in us. And thank you that it will not stop until you bring us home to when we no longer will need it because we will be finally, fully, forever pure. What a day that will be. And even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.